You're listening to the Imperfect Leader Podcast. This podcast is designed for imperfect leaders. We discuss mental and emotional health, leading effectively, spiritual growth, and what following Jesus in today's world looks like. I'm Scott Neal, your host. Before we get into this episode, please take just a second, give us a rating, and leave a comment on whatever platform you're listing. It is the best gift you can give to us. Now, let's get into this episode. And remember, nothing succeeds like imperfection. Today, I have my friend Sarissa Rhodes with us. I'm excited about introducing her to you and getting a chance to get to know a little bit more about her. Sarissa, welcome to the Imperfect Leader Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad that you are with us today. I want to introduce you to the audience and get them a chance to know who a little bit more who you are. So let's begin with, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are from, uh, you know, where's home, a little bit about your family, and how did you get to Elizabeth City, North Carolina? All right. So I am married to Matt Rhodes, and he's in the Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in Washington State, and I went to college in Sitka, Alaska, uh, and I met him while I was working there after graduating. And then we moved here. Well, no, that skips a whole bunch. Yeah. So I met him in Alaska and we got back together while he was living in Hawaii. Okay. So and you've so, been uh, homeless of Washington State. Yes. You've lived in Alaska and Hawaii and now you're in Elizabeth City. Yes. And I actually lived in Oregon State for a year doing AmeriCorps Vista. Wow. Prior to Hawaii. Right. Now, how and long have you guys been together? Here. It'll be 10 years married in July. Okay. So that all that move is, is over how many years? Let's see. Well, for my, about 15, 15 years, but we've only, a lot of those moves were on my own. Okay. The Alaska and Oregon was on my own. So we've been together about 12 years. Okay. Great. Well, that's a lot of uh, different uh, places to live, Alaska, Hawaii, and Elizabeth City. So I I would ask you which one is your favorite, but I doubt you would say Elizabeth City out of all those places you've lived. Yeah. But it Uh, won't be Hawaii either, which would be shocking. So where is your favorite place? Out of all the places I lived would be Sitka, Alaska. Oh, really? I loved it there. Yeah. I talked to a lot of people because, you know, we live in a Coast Guard town and many of them have come through Alaska or on their way to Alaska. And it's, it's one of those love or hate. I've talked to some families, they love Alaska, they want to go back. And I've talked to some other families, like, I'm so glad that trip's over, you know, that tour is over there, so I don't have to be there anymore. So so you happen to be one of those people who love Alaska. Yes, yeah. I loved it. Yeah, is it all the just the, because of the outdoors and fishing and all the different things, or is it the people, the community, what? My family has always kind of been connected to Alaska. Like, yeah. I have family in the mainland part of Alaska, so I had been there before, um, Southeast is gorgeous, mm. but I think the big thing is that I am one of those people that my world totally opened up when I went to college. Okay. And so I had so much life change and so much just finding myself mm-hmm. there with those people in that community. That's great. I've heard that's a very tight knit community there too. Yes. Yeah. So when you're there, you make friends easily and everybody kind of looking after one another and, and helping with kids and all the different things that go there with that so that's very good well now you came to uh forest park you have a unique story in coming here how i got a chance to get to know you so tell us a little bit about how you came to find forest park and why you started attending here and why you're still here so a friend of mine who's also coast guard had said that they heard about this church and they wanted to come 
um, at first I was kind of afraid because I always assume everybody else is more Christian than I am. Okay. So I was like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work, but okay, we'll go. Right. Um, and immediately what I liked was the music. Hmm. I don't think I'd ever been somewhere that had kind of the live now, music what, that we Now, what had. kind of background did you have, though, growing up in church? Did you go to church at all as a child or what? I went with my grandma Saturday night to the Episcopal Church. Okay. So very classic. There, there wasn't any music Saturday night. And then I would go off and on to different four square churches with my okay. friends, mm-hmm. never consistently. Um, and all this is in Washington state. That was all in Washington okay. state in Alaska. I had gone to different churches. There was a group of us that, um, one of us was Mormon. One was Catholic. Um, my, I had the background Episcopalian. There was a Presbyterian and we kind of skipped around and went visited different churches. And then I had gone to a Unitarian church in Oregon. Um, and there was a period of time after going to a Easter service in the Catholic church that I had just, I'd been questioning the Christianity for a long time, not belief in God or belief in Jesus, but like the community, right. um, for a while. And that kind of, that particular service kind of sealed the deal for me. And I decided I wasn't going to go back to a church that didn't accept every single one of my friends mm. or that when I went in, I felt guilty for being there. Wow. And so that was... So obviously some some of your experiences at different churches made you feel that way. Yes. And excluded some of your friends and made you feel somewhat, either you, maybe or maybe not, you would be accepted. So you weren't sure. Yes. Okay. And this particular church you went to there in Washington State was a was a good experience for you? or Or that day sealed the deal, you're never going back. It was um, an Easter service in Alaska. Oh, that's right, um, yeah, Alaska. And they had used the opportunity um, to kind of judge the people that only go on holidays. Oh, okay. And so it was one of those, all right, then I'm, you know, I we sat there for, it was a 45-minute lecture right. on only coming on holidays. And oh, not goodness. once did they talk about the Easter story. <laughs> and that kind of sealed the deal. Like, right. all right. This, so you walked out it. that day and said, okay, I don't think I'm going to do this again. Yeah. How long was it after that that you decided to give it a shot again? It was, I mean, I went to the Unitarian Church after that. That was very, very different for me. Um, I met, I mean, it was a great group of people and we connected on a social justice level, but it was very, very unique to what I was used to. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't try anything else until I came back, until I came to Forest Park. Wow. Okay. So that was a number of years. Yeah. Okay. And your friend asked you to come here mm-hmm. and you were hesitant to come, but you decided to show up. Yeah. Okay. And she, I don't believe she had been here before either. I think it was her also her first weekend. So you were, what What were you feeling walking in? It's funny because the parts I don't like about church are what, whenever I go to a less traditional church, I feel uncomfortable about. So when we walked in, one, I was afraid I wouldn't fit in. But then also like when there wasn't, there wasn't standing, there wasn't kneeling, there wasn't the peace, there wasn't communion. Right. At, for a very long time, it didn't feel like church. Right. There, were, there wasn't anything I didn't like, mm-hmm. but it didn't feel like going to church right. for a long so time. So some of those elements were missing, and it somewhat felt a little awkward to you because what you had grown up expecting church to be is not necessarily what you found here. Yes. Okay. But something compelled you to come back. So you enjoyed the music. Mm-hmm. You liked some of the people you met, felt comfortable, and you came back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my favorite part was that 
the messages can be connected to life. Mm-hmm. Like they are very practical. I right. never experienced that at any church. Right. Yeah. Hey, I talked to someone last um, last weekend at the end of the message, and they were telling me that their experience in church in the past, uh, even though they liked many of the services they had attended in other you know other places in in the country, they didn't necessarily know what to do with the message. You know, it, it, it explained a few things from scripture, gave them a little history or something, but they didn't know how to put that into practice Monday. They didn't know what to do with it the rest of the week. And then when you come back the next Sunday and it's the same thing and the next Sunday, the same thing, then over a period of months, you hear a lot of, you know, bits and pieces of information from scripture, but no idea what to do with it. And one of the things they've enjoyed here, you know, is that they can take it out and put it into practice, whether it's in their marriage or their job or with their children or just in their own mental health or, you know, whatever. And that was encouraging to me, you know, because that's what I want. I want to take a lot of that out of the rafters. Sometimes I'll say and, and put it there on your lap and say, okay, you don't have to necessarily agree with this. You don't necessarily have to embrace all of it. But here are some things that you, that you can put into practice right now, and hopefully it'll improve a few things going on in your life. And my, my hope is eventually, as they put the puzzle together, they also discover that there's some someone uh, behind all of that, and, and that's God, and that Christianity is, is true. So that, that's great. So how long have you been here to Forest Park now? I don't even really know. About six years. Six years, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'm so glad that you said yes that day that you came. <laughs> and now you're part of uh, a couple groups that, that my wife and I, Lynn and I, are, are in. And we just enjoy your friendship and enjoy get to know you. So let me let me jump to kind of what you do and one of the main reasons I wanted to sit down with you. Because uh, what you do on a daily basis to me is just so interesting. So tell us uh, wh- where you work right now and, and what you do. Okay. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I'm at Pride in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's community mental health. Um, I provide outpatient therapy for people of all ages. Um, my favorite and kind of my specialty is kids with trauma. Okay. Now explain to our audience uh, what would be considered trauma. I think a lot of times when people hear the word trauma, mm-hmm. because of maybe what they've seen you know, on television or in movies, they assume that is a major accident or something horrendous has happened to a, you know, in a person's life. But one of the things that you've opened me up to just in our discussions is that's not necessarily how you define, you can define trauma that way, but it's not a full definition of trauma. So give me some illustrations or something of what maybe a child might actually go through that other people may not consider traumatic, but it actually is. No, that's a really great point. And I always explain that it's kind of a therapeutic definition of trauma. So the way that I explain trauma, especially to the kids, is it's anything that was really upsetting that changes the way you thought of the world. Hmm. And so like a classic example would be two people could be in a car, two people, you know, car accident, one gets hurt, one doesn't. Even the one that gets hurt, if they can get up, get in the car the next day, go to work, they did not experience trauma. The passenger maybe that did not get hurt, but now feels that cars are dangerous. They struggle to get into the car. They're slamming on their brakes when another car approaches for no reason. That that person experienced trauma. So it's not necessarily what happened. It's what we do with what happened. Okay, so some events are traumatic to some people and not traumatic to other people. Yes. And that's often why, you know, I hear 
you know, some parents might say to, to their children, get over it. You know, I did the same thing when I was a kid and I was fine. Mm-hmm. You know, what's your problem kind of thing. Almost like they can make a choice to just snap out of it, you know, but maybe this child is experiencing what, you know, the same thing that the parent experienced when the parent was much younger, but they're perceiving it completely differently and, and they're experiencing residual effects of that particular event. Yes. That's much different than the parent. It's very much more about how the child is thinking or how the person is thinking about the events. Now, is that because of how that uh, that person is is kind of wired together? Is it their personality or just like why is it that two people can be in the car? I know we don't we can't possibly answer it fully, but a little bit of perspective. Why is it two people can be in a car? They have an accident. One is fine emotionally. Overall is fine. The other one. This is a traumatic event and changes, alters their perception. It really goes to resilience, how resilient a person is. Are they naturally anxious? Do they already have some thought distortions? Like, do they already see the world as dangerous or mm-hmm. is something to be worried about? Um, or did they see the world as so perfect that now okay. everything has shifted? Okay. That's a great insight there. So some people see the world as a very safe place. And so it, this, this could come from a wonderful childhood. Oh, yes. They've been loved. So it doesn't mean that if someone is 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 experiencing some of the residual effects of this event, that is because they're unhealthy or mentally unstable. They could have had a wonderful childhood. Everything in their life has gone well and they get into an accident or someone does something to them that breaks them. Now their world was ideal prior to this event. And now this event has caused, you know, a change in their perception of the way reality works. Yes, I would almost say I see more people that have had several, several traumas, but I would say the person that has had kind of this idealistic, perfect life and then has something major, that person is more likely to have trauma at the littlest thing. Like that's Mm -hmm. almost a scary way to live because then there is no resilience built. Okay. So a child who has grown up in a wonderful family, been taken care of his or her entire life, because they've had life pretty good and they've experienced a pretty good life, they have not had a chance to build up some resilience. Mm -hmm. So when this event occurs in their life, it really spins them out of control sometimes because they've not built it up. Yeah. They may not have the coping skills at all to put it together or. Now you say you, you typically see someone after they've gone through a few traumatic events. Oftentimes it's several. I think it's because one, so many people experience several traumas in life. Okay. Um, it could be when they're coming, like if it's an adult, generally there's significant traumas that have occurred in, in their life. But even children, a lot of times will come in and it's just trauma after trauma. Mm. It's, you know, maybe, maybe mom and dad, you know, were fighting and so the child witnessed domestic violence, but then mom got sick. So now... That's scary because mom got sick and then, um, you know, something happened. Like it just kind of goes on from there. Yeah. What is a typical, um, um, what are, what are a few common traumatic things that you see coming into your office pretty consistently? I would say witnessing domestic violence is huge. Sexual abuse is beyond common. Okay. Um, for children and adults. Now the adults 
meaning that they were sexually abused as a child or they're just now dealing with it? Yes. Okay, that's very common. Mm-hmm. If you had to put a percentage on that, what would you what would you say? Not necessarily the percentage of people who come in your office, but I, I'm curious to know what your what you would say the percentage of people within our country who've probably been sexually abused. Well, how high do you think that is? They say it's one in four <clears throat> women and one in six men. I would say it's significantly higher. Because significantly higher. Double? Pro- I, probably. I mean, it's just, it's unreal how many people will come in and say they've never told a soul. Wow. And so those statistics are only met on the people that have disclosed and that have been reported somewhere right. for it to be documented. And these are adults mainly who come in and say, I've never told anyone. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this typically happens, any idea on what age bracket you often see sexual abuse happening? The abuse happening? Yeah. Oh gosh. It's usually young. Young. You'd be, I think it would be shocking to know how many times it happens under the age of five, but definitely childhood in general. Okay. Now under the age of five, I, I would imagine many of them do not have a clear recollection of exactly what occurred. Mm-mm. It would more be implicit memory. So okay. they might remember a sense sounds, smells, feeling out of control, lots of confusion, potentially pain. Yeah. And they don't know why. Mm-hmm. Right. Correct. Let's, let's talk a little, a little bit about that because I, I remember you, you and I and our group was actually talking about this. I think it was last week or so. And you mentioned something I found very interesting and that is even in birth trauma, which I'd like to get to in a moment, but that child has no recollection of this particular traumatic event However, that traumatic event is affecting them in their life. So you have a child that has been sexually abused at four. You know, I, I, I look back on my life. I can't remember much. You know, I mean, four is probably going to be about the first reasonably good memory I have of anything going on in my life. And I'll have a little flash here and a little flash there. But just because that child cannot remember molestation or something that occurred at three, you, you may not have the memory, right? That a clear memory, but yet your body remembers that you're, so you can have some effects. Explain a little bit of that. I I just find this interesting. At three or four, you, you might, you would probably would have more of a memory. The, the idea is if you didn't have words when it happened. So if you weren't speaking yet, or you had a speech impediment, okay, you won't be able to explain it. And as a memory, Hmm. Your body will remember the pieces of it. Okay. Once you have, once you're able to talk, then you connect it to words. Okay. Um, which is kind of odd to think about, but because when you're very young, there's no words to connect it to. Okay. But what they might remember is a a cologne. Right. So then later, when all of a sudden they're in the room with somebody wearing that same cologne, they may not know why, but they can't sit still. They're very angry. They're doing things and nobody understands why or that same person. Mm-hmm. Um, so they could get, so let me, let me set this up to make sure I understand it. So this person could have been sexually abused by this adult mm-hmm. and the child has no clear memory of this particular adult doing anything to them, but they just notice maybe some nervousness or some anxiety when they're a teenager or even a young adult around this particular person or someone else who wears that person's cologne or maybe you go back to the house that it occurred in and they don't know why they feel anxiety or fear 
or whatever. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, like they very likely will not want to have anything to do with that person, but maybe won't be able to tell a parent why. Mm -hmm. So they have no idea how to explain what's going on, Mm -hmm. but yet something traumatic has occurred. Okay. And I would imagine that those traumatic events, you know, this trauma that this child experienced at two or three or whatever, um, you know, there, there are some coping, um, things that they try to get into maybe even as a teenager to calm those, that, that anxiety down, which only leads to more problems. Uh, Yes. Yeah. I think I don't completely understand this part, but I think that's why a lot of times with sexual abuse, you see heightened sexual activity. And I think it has to do with confusion and trying mm-hmm. to figure out the whole act of what happened and why right. it happened. And so everything would would this be accurate? I want to make sure I'm 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 you know I'm accurate. Everything that happens to a person from the time they're born onward, the it it, it is in their mind. It is lodged there somewhere. They may not have the ability to communicate that, but does it affect them? I don't know if I can answer that. I don't know that everything is. I think everything that has an impact at the time it happened. Okay. I'm just wondering if a child goes through something at one or two, does that affect the rest of their life? They, it could. Okay. Depending on how traumatic the event or whatever. How traumatic it was to them. Yeah. Okay. And that's why, you know, this goes all the way back to like Erickson's stages of development. Mm-hmm. And so... If a child doesn't learn to develop trust at the time that they're supposed to develop trust, they will likely struggle with that their li- throughout their life. Now, of course, they can get help and they can work right. on that, but that okay, will be well, a struggle. Let's, let's zero in on that. At what age is that when they're developing trust? I want to say that's our very first stage. So that's okay. like infancy to like one or two. Okay. So if in the infancy stage up to the age of two, there's not a lot of trust built there's a lot of disappointment. Uh, could be uh, <clears throat> mom could be moving in with different men, or man moving in with different women, or or moving homes, or lots of yelling, or fighting, or whatever going on in the home. And the child never feels at peace, never feels secure. Now let's say that life kind of calms down at four or five, and everything in that child's life seems pretty good. They could still struggle with they trust. Could- they, they don't necessarily, it's not a guarantee that they will, but right. yeah, they could. They could. That right. goes back to personality mm-hmm. and resilience. Okay. It goes and, back to what you said before, mm-hmm. depending on how resilient the child is. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important in those first several months, you know, the attachment piece. Mm-hmm. Attachment and trauma are very connected. When they cry, where they picked up, when they were hungry, okay. where they fed, when they were cold. Um, and that's, there's a strong connection and it's kind of accidental. Um but when people don't realize with little, little ones with hearing loss or ear infections when they're very young, mm-hmm. um, sometimes they will have a hard time struggling with trust because nobody caught on to what was going on and that okay. need wasn't satisfied quickly, Okay, if that makes sense. So there's oh, sure. sometimes there's a connection to just very random things. Right. And so that's, you know, that would be a question. Did they have a lot of ear infections when they were little? Right. Did they have to have ear tubes? Right. So, so someone in their 30s struggling with you know, lack of trust or, you know, insecurity or whatever. We're, we're certainly not saying that something traumatic happened in their life, but it is possible that something happened during those early stages of development and, and they have no memory of that. But yet during that developmental key developmental stage of life, they were, uh, 
the, the, the nutrition, if you will, was, was denied them in their psychological development, their brain mm-hmm. development. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That could be a huge part of it. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, it gets kind of more complicated too, because as an adult or as an adolescent, when you actually do have a working, me- like a very, a memory, you can talk about it and mm-hmm. stuff. Our brains will also protect us. And so something could happen and your brain is blocking the memory. So once you get older, then there's could be that complication as so well. So your, your brain could actually block the memory of something that occurred when you were a child. Or as an adult, either one. Really? Mm-hmm. And, that's a, and that is a, a defense mechanism? That's a defense or mechanism. A safety yes. kind of a way of mm-hmm. kind of locking that away? Your brain's be- protecting you. Okay. But you still, you, you still have some of the effects of that though, correct? Yes. Often people will, will know there's something mm-hmm. that they're not remembering. Yeah. Have you had within your, within your uh, career a few cases where someone may have been struggling with, you know, daily anxiety or, or certain fears or whatever, and then through the therapy and through the counseling uncovered some things that they did not know about and then it became clear? Yes. I've also had people that have just never connected. Like they had okay. the memory. Okay. Um, like I have a really big example I'll never forget. I had a woman come in that very anxious, like not functioning in life mm-hmm. at all because of the anxiety. Um, but she had a horrific trauma at the age of six. Okay. Um, you know, she witnessed her cousin be hit by a car while they were holding hands. Oh, goodness. And never from the age of six to, you know, mid-adult, never connected her anxiety to what happened when she was six and never had therapy as a child. So she was, she just thought that was just an event that occurred and that was a a terrible thing. But what she's going through today has nothing to do with that. Correct. Okay. Correct. And I would say that's pretty common. Yeah. No, I'm fine. Uh huh. I, I just have anxiety. Right. And and do you think, I, I know a little bit about that because there are some things that I've, you know, had to go through and any, anyone who, who is part of Forest Park or has listened to some of uh, the uh, messages that I bring, I, I share some about my childhood and some of the insecurities and things. And it, it definitely took me a while to admit. And it, I, I use the word admit because that that's how it actually felt that, that I admitted that a few of the things I'm going, you know, it was going through in my thirties and forties they were related to what I went through at six, seven, and eight, eight years of age. I don't know why it's so hard for us. Like I said, I had to admit that. It was almost like I had to humble myself and say, yes, those things affected me. I don't know if it was because I, I wanted to appear stronger, you know, than I actually was, or, yeah, I got over that stuff when I was a kid. I'm fine. What, what, do you, what would you say? Why do we struggle with connecting the dots, if you will? I think there's so many reasons. One reason is, is I think we naturally want to protect our family. Oh. And so if we admit that this happened, we're afraid that somebody may judge our family. Okay. I also think like that strong piece, that was your norm. It's mm-hmm. people's norm. And so later to admit that that wasn't actually a normal event right. is makes you vulnerable, you know. Yeah. What else did I experience? Because at the time, you probably did feel okay with it. Yep. You worked through yep. it. Yep. That was definitely true. When I remember when I uh, was first married, uh, my wife, Lana, you know, had a wonderful childhood and lived in the same community, went to the same school system. Mom and dad still married today, you know, close to 60 years. 
Um, and you know, I wanted to protect my childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, she would ask me certain questions and, and I would answer them, but my immediate, you know, attitude was somewhat of a defense. Well, you know, my mom did the best she could, or, you know, we, we, we were a good family. I had a good childhood, but I was struggling with depression. I was struggling with anxiety. I was struggling with a variety of things, but somehow I separated my childhood from that. And I didn't want to, you're right. I didn't want to blame my mom. I, I mean, she did the best she could, you know, that kind of thing. And, and coming to the realization that it's all connected, that it really was an epiphany for me. And then I, I felt free to then talk about the pain of, of childhood or, or disappointment in my family. It was, it was a hard journey. And I would imagine there's a lot of people listening that, you know, that maybe they either they haven't connected the dots or maybe they're just now in the process of putting all that together. And that's one of the reasons why counseling is so helpful Mm -hmm. to help put that. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally a person on the inside, on the outside. And so I'm making those connections as people are sharing them. But for the person, that's just experiences they've lived. That's just their history. Right. So they're, they're in it and can't really see it from the outside. You're, you're a little bit higher up, almost kind of, you know, the cliche we've heard before, you can't see the forest for the trees. So this person who's lived it, you know, this, this woman who maybe, or man who hurt them, they see them as mom. They see them as dad. You see them as a woman who hurt you, right? A man who hurt you. So you can somewhat connect these things and draw this overall picture for this person that the person can't. The, the person sitting in, in your office can't necessarily draw that same picture. Correct. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of people sitting in, in the counseling office with those epiphanies. It mm-hmm. finally clicks. It finally dawns on them. Ah, that makes sense. And a lot, a lot of people come in and they don't want to tell you anything about their childhood. I want to talk about today because I just want to get, I want to be able to go to work and not get in trouble with my boss. Okay. That has nothing to do with my childhood. Now, is that because of what we just we just said? Mm-hmm. They're trying to protect. I, I believe so. Or, or they, they just don't want to go, go there, or it's or, too painful. Uh, I don't need to talk about that. Just, I want to handle this. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that's very true. With with me, you know, I, I it was difficult because I had to relive a few things. Mm-hmm. You know that I had kind of filed away. You know, I. I put them in the closet, closed the door, you know, been there, done that, dealt with it. Now, just just, just help me where I am right now because um, I'm, I'm okay, you know. And I had to go back and open those closets. And I had to revisit some, some people that I didn't necessarily like. And I had to admit that some of the people I didn't necessarily like, actually, I still carry them with me. They're still part of my life. That was, I guess, where I'm when I when I said that I had to humble myself. You know, I had to admit that I, maybe I wasn't as strong as I thought I was as a as a teenager or as a young adult. You know, maybe, maybe they affected me more than I wanted to admit. And that makes people very uncomfortable. Yeah, very uncomfortable. Yeah, because for me, I like I said, I kind of closed that part of my life and moved on. And then here I am in my 30s and 40s, having to reopen some things. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was um, that that brought some some pain. It really did. But I tell you what, it also brought a lot of freedom because I was able to name some things. Yeah. You know, I didn't know what to call it. And then when I finally could call it for what it was, you know, that, that helped. We actually do that with our kids a lot. 
name your worries, name your, okay. just the idea. That's a good point. You mentioned that, like just to be able to name something. Mm-hmm. Now, now tell me what you mean by you with your kids. Like what, like, what, what do you, what I assume that's some practical tools you give to parents. Yes. Help your child do this or do like that. Name their worry or connect it to them, connect their stomach ache and not want to go to school with the fact that they're worried about where mom is when they're at school. Okay. So you it's know, not help just them a stomach name ache. It, help them. Right. Yes. Yeah. So you're teaching them this very deep self-awareness. Know yourself. Know why you feel the way you feel. Absolutely. Right. So, what? okay, let's get very practical. What would you do with a child who seems to be just, uh, I mean, all children, I shouldn't say all children, but most children have some level of fear of the dark or what's under the bed. But what if you have a child who's exceptionally afraid and having a difficult time sleeping or what? How would you help the parent? help the child name what they're afraid of, et cetera. Asking questions, telling them, um, especially when you ask questions, doing it in a way that doesn't make them have to name the fact that they are scared, but they're feeling fear. There's a big difference in that. Okay. Cause a lot of kids will say, Oh, I do. I feel fear or I feel scared, but I'm not scared, which is interesting. But mm. to the child to say, I'm scared sounds like, they're like people will make fun of them okay to say i feel that way is different um because the feeling is somewhat separate from them is that is that why okay um but also just asking like what are you thinking when you're in the dark what are you thinking well i'm thinking what's in my closet okay and so helping them to understand that that's the thought that's making them scared and not the dark Mm. a lot of fear comes from our thoughts and so helping them realize that um depending on how scared they are really traditional, you know, kind of things that you read on Facebook are helpful, kind of like monster spray Mm -hmm. and things that give them the power um, because they are still in that imaginative stage as well. But definitely when it becomes where they're not sleeping, where they're not like, they're not going to go to school. Right. Then it's more helping them remember times that they did sleep and everything was okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, I love, I like that line you, you just mentioned about they're still in the imaginative stage. So you don't mm-hmm. want to take away all their imagination. No. So, so we certainly as a parent do not want to rob them of all of their uh, fantasies and dreams and imagine. I think that's extremely uh, important. Uh, you want to honor that and somewhat allow them to still live in, in, in that imaginative world. Right. Yes, absolutely. So you don't want to rob that because that's that's some of the magic and the beauty of being a child. Um, but yet you want to give them somewhat put them in the driver's seat rather than their emotions being in the driver's seat. So they they control their emotions or at least name them. And when you name them, you feel a little bit more in control. Absolutely. Right. They're not standing over you. You're standing over them. And you're saying, I know what you are. You are fear. Right. We we actually that's interesting that you talked about that. We in trauma therapy, we call the trauma a bully. And okay, the bully we, starts. You out call anything. trauma a bully. Yes. Okay. So you name trauma, you, you you put it out almost like a person. Yes. Okay. It says bully, and it starts out huge. Okay. The more we talk about the bully, though, the smaller and smaller it gets, and eventually you can put that bully in your pocket, mm. and nobody's afraid of something so small they can put in their pocket. Right. And so that's kind of how. So you now, know, how I see that is you're you're helping the child become empowered mm-hmm. and strong. And in charge of the bully rather than the bully being in charge of them. Yes. Okay. And see, that is just so key to learn that early. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I just can't even imagine had that happened to me when I was, you know, six, seven, eight, especially in, in the probably probably about a four year period of, of my life, probably from six to about uh, 10. I would say that four year period. We moved a lot. Uh, my parents were going through their own you know, issues in marriage. My mom got remarried and we moved and moved and all those different things. Boy, I had someone, I had a lot of fears. I had a lot of insecurities and I didn't know who to trust and on and on it went. If had someone been able to sit down with me at that age, because I was somewhat of an inquisitive child and intelligent, you know, and I could comprehend things and just help me put that bully in my pocket. Mm -hmm. I cannot even imagine what that would have done for me when I hit high school, you know, when I went to college when I started to, to get in life because uh, you don't just automatically become self-aware because you get older. No. You know, people say, well, you know, surely by the time you're in college, you can put the bully in your pocket by yourself. That's not true at all. Mm -hmm. If you've never learned those skills, you've never learned those skills. Isn't that correct? You don't automatically learn them. No, that's, that's absolutely correct. And I think when we look at anger, that's the biggest thing. And I, I work with parents a lot on that is that, Oftentimes kids get punished for being angry. Not on I don't think a parent realizes they're doing it, but like the child stomps off or throws something or breaks something and they get in trouble for stomping off or breaking it, mm. but nobody teaches them what to do instead. Okay. What what do you do when you're angry? Because anger is, is a legitimate emotion. Yes. You you want your child to get angry just in control of the anger. Angry maybe over over the right things mm -hmm. rather than the wrong things. So you just get ang you get angry with your child for getting angry or you punish your child and they never learn what to do with, with all these emotions, right? And then and then they are going to college and now they're throwing bigger things. Mm. Or now they're, you know, punching the wall. Yeah, so the temper never tantrum learned. only gets just somewhat more adult like, but it's still a temper tantrum. Yes. Yeah. And I would imagine you see adults who <laughs> who are sitting in a forty year old body but in a lot of ways, emotionally, they're, yes. they're a child. They're a an lot. adolescent. Yeah. yeah. Because they, they never, never learned. learned. Wow. Which leads to marital problems, which leads to addictive. Now yes. they're old enough to buy alcohol and, uh -huh. and they have the ability to get drugs or, or whatever. And their, their, their security blanket is just more expensive <laughs> yeah. and more dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Wow. Well, I could, I could talk to you about that for a long time because I just find all of that fascinating. What what are what what what's a a major challenge you have maybe in your career in in your line of work uh, as a social worker in counseling? What's kind of a, a a constant barrier or maybe an obstacle? Is it you know, for instance, is it getting parents to to bring their children in or for them to carry these things out when they get back home or? an acceptance in our society of mental health issues. Just what, what are a few of those things that just uh, frustrate you kind of it's a rock in your shoe at times? Kind of all the above. I would definitely say that there's a lot of times that we can, that parents kind of bring us a kid and want them quote unquote fixed. Mm. Um, and that's frustrating because one, the kid's not broken, Okay, <laughs> but also the parent probably has just as much work to do as the child. Okay. And that's really in any family. Yeah. Like there's just things that you could work on as well. And sometimes that's really hard to get parents on board with. So the parent wants to just 
kind of like drop the kid off, not literally, but maybe even that. They literally come and drop the child off and go somewhere else. And they want you to fix them. Mm-hmm. So they pick them back up, kind of like I dropped my computer off. It was fixed. I pick it up. And now the child's going to behave at home or, or whatever. Yes. And they don't see their own part. The parent doesn't see the, their part in the problems this child's experiencing. Exactly. And some of it is some of that challenge, too, sometimes trickles into two. Um, sometimes it can be very challenging to get a parent to see a symptom as a to see a behavior as a symptom. Mm. That can be very challenging, too. And until we can see the behavior as a symptom, it doesn't get treated right at home. And I, it's very accidental. Mm-hmm. Um, but often kids get punished for things that they maybe don't have yet the skill to not do. Okay. And that can also be, that kind of goes hand in hand with the parent involvement is also getting parents really on board um, with the child's behavior and understanding it and how to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Something you, you said there too, um, I'd like to get your insight on. You said the child's not broken. Um, at Forest Park, we use that phrase a lot. You know, we have people are broken and, you know, we're here to help repair people and fix people. I, I certainly know, I shouldn't say I, I know, but I think I understand what I mean by that when I say it. But I, am, I have been curious what, you know, a therapist or a counselor would say, you know, are there, are there broken people? Do you not see them as broken? Or how, how, do you, how would you word that? Because I'd like to learn a better way maybe of even saying that. Uh, do you not, do you just say they're not broken as children, but they are broken as adults, you know, kind of what's your insight on that? That makes me laugh only because I was thinking that exact thing. Like it just, it hurts my soul the first time I to say that a child is broken. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, cause they're, they're, they're not broken. They need to learn new skills, but I guess that would be true of the adult as well. Right. That's, but, what, that's what I want to know. Do you see adults as broken or just, they just don't know. They, they just are, or is there a point that they cross a line because we see people who do horrendous things, mm-hmm. you know, and, and abuse children or, you know, they're, they, they destroy their husband or their wife multiple times. And it's, you know, is, is that a broken person? Is that person shattered or is it just still a lack of knowledge or how do you see that? I have this philosophy that I can't think too much about because I'll get really frustrated, but I really have a very strong philosophy and I very much believe that all people are good people. Okay. But that some people make really poor choices in getting their needs met. Okay. And our needs, we learn how to you know meet our needs based on our experiences. So even horrific things, obviously, you know, we need consequences, we need all this kind of stuff, but that person is doing that for a reason. Mm-hmm. Even if it's that that person is a sociopath or a psychopath, then there's a mental illness. Okay. That's still the reason. Right. Um, or it's not that, it's that they have no, they don't have resources to have another way. And so we need to teach and, them. And I, I just, you know, in ministry and in interacting with hundreds and possibly thousands of people throughout the years, I, I have seen so many, you know, the, the domino effect Mm-hmm. And, and what you often see when I say you, I mean, people in general will often see the, you know, the almost last domino that falls, but you don't really know what kicked that off. And it could have been something when they were a child or as a teenager or whatever. And if you could somehow roll back time and go back before that first domino fell, 
in that person's life, you would see in many cases, and I'm sure there are exceptions to this. I don't know. I don't, I don't have that kind of knowledge, obviously. But I would think that the majority of people, um, that child was, was a sweet child and, and wanted the best out of life and, and uh, cared about people and et cetera. You know? But then a few events began to occur and they made some decisions that were probably poor because they didn't have the skills or, or whatever. And it began this, this, uh, this falling of yeah. dominoes in this, in this child's life. And here they are now, you know, their marriage is blown up. They're, they're an addict because of a variety of different reasons or whatever, or homeless, you know, mm-hmm. they're on the streets. I, I, I'm blown away by some of the stories of people who are homeless. And then you find out it was just a few years ago. They had a thriving life yeah. and everything was beautiful. But a few things happened. I think what I hear more than broken is when people come in, they'll either say, you know, I am crazy or I'm not crazy or don't think I'm crazy. Like it's the crazy aspect Mm -hmm. that I get a lot. And then explaining, you know, that no, like look at look at what you've lived through or look at what's happened or look at what you're dealing with. Yeah. You know that you were responding. let Let me ask you this. There, are, someone listening to this podcast may have a, a, a child or a young teenager or whatever, and they don't know. You know, does my is my child normal? You know, quote unquote, or do I need to take them in? You know, to a therapist or a counselor. What are a few signs, some some things that you would say to this parent? Okay, look for this because there are some things that are somewhat within the realm of normal as this child's going through hormonal changes and trying to figure out their own way in life. And, and they're, they're, they're okay. You know, they're, they're within that bracket, but there are some other things that you would say, all right, if you see these behaviors, you probably need to make a call. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say? That's a great question. The, the simple answer is when whatever is happening, the behavior, the symptom is interfering with their daily life. That's mm-hmm. the time. Okay. What does that mean? Practically, it's very different for everybody. If your kid is honestly not sleeping, sleep is huge with mental health. Mm-hmm. That might be a time. Okay. Um, accidents, repeated nightmares, uh, things like like just being angry and aggressive repeatedly, mm-hmm. things like that. With the older kids, you know, talking about self harm obviously would be a good reason to bring somebody in. I also always caution for parents as much as possible because I know they're freaking out when that happens to be calm because that self-harm is a subject that it's an it's an unhelpful coping skill and it often gets labeled as suicidal behaviors which gets scary. So mm. absolutely that's a time to maybe get them some help, but it's not maybe as scary as a parent. Okay, so fears. is it correct to say that just because a child is engaging in self-harm does not mean they're suicidal? Correct. Okay. In fact, I would say the majority are not hmm. suicidal. Yeah, I know that's an entire very deep subject on self-harm, but just kind of the what's what's the main reason or maybe a reason that a child does that? Is it is it for attention or is it because they're hurting on the inside and they're It's a What it's a coping skill. Like the best I can explain it. And of course it's totally depends on content. Sure. And there's, you know, it's multifaceted, but in my head, it's somewhat, it's no different than the parent that smokes in the sense mm. that, you know, it's unhealthy. 
You know that it could give you cancer. You know all these things. But when you get stressed or when life feels out of control or you just yelled at your kid and you didn't mean to, you go and smoke. Okay. That's what somebody that's self-harming is doing. It could be, obviously it could be immediately more dangerous, but it's a coping sure. skill that somehow they got into um, and it took the stress away for a moment. Well, and that, so that would it certainly be eye-opening to many parents if they would accept that. Because they, they in, in essence, they're self-harming just in a much slower and more acceptable way in order to cope in life. But if they see their child cut themselves or whatever it is they choose to do, it's immediate 911, every bell goes off, every whistle, you know, but yet this child is just doing what he or she can do to cope in some ways with life as maybe even the parent has provided for them. Yes. Yeah. So that goes back to you saying they, they bring them in, Hey, fix my child but they don't want to necessarily deal with all the things in their own life that has possibly led this child to this place. Yeah. And that definitely is, you know, a sign that they need help, but potentially not the time to call 911. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, let me, let me ask you this few more personal questions here. We'll kind of jump off, off that and go in a little different direction. Um, what, what would you like to eventually see happen in, in your career? Um, how long have you been doing this by the way, before I get to that? I've been licensed for four years. Okay. I've been in the helping field really since I graduated. All right. So so where, where would you like to see this eventually go? What What's a passion of yours or a desire of yours to be fulfilled? I would really, like I have some specialized training with kids. Mm-hmm. I would love to have more specialized training with trauma and adults. Okay. I would love to learn some EMDR and, and just be really proficient in some evidence-based things. Um, with the adult population. I work with a lot of adults, but just something more specific. Right. Um, I'd love to, to see that. Yeah, that's great. And, and is that a, obviously it's a needed area. Yes, Okay, so, that, so that's an area that is just not, because it seems like there's a lot of counseling for adults. I mean, everywhere I turn, there seems to be a lot of that. There but is. But not as many for children, or is it the tra- trauma aspect of it? I would say there's much more people that will see adolescents up in general okay. everywhere. Okay. Very few will like I um, one of my trainings allows me to to see zero to six. I mean, that's a very special population. Yeah. Um, but there's not a whole lot of therapists that are necessarily certified in, in things like EMDR or certified in specific models for treating trauma with adults. Mm-hmm. And there's more than EMDR. That's just one that I'm particularly interested in. Yeah. And what exactly is that again? So that's eye movement, rapid, de- eye movement desensitization. Right. It's a form of trauma therapy that's amazing with PTSD. Okay. Um, in a lot of cases, you can treat the trauma without the person having to, having to disclose what happened. Wow. Which is phenomenal because that's a huge barrier. They don't want to talk about it. Really? Okay. That opens a whole nother thing. So, so they're going through, obviously they're, they're experiencing some negative fallout Mm -hmm. of whatever it is they went through. They know what they went through, but they don't want to talk about it. Correct. Okay. Now that would, I would imagine that would be some pretty, uh, um, horrendous things that they're trying to what not relive or not disclose because of getting people in trouble or all? I mean, it could be anything. Yeah. 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 Interesting. 
Well, I could walk down that road now for a while, so <laughs> we'll wrap that up, though, before we get into that. Well, let me, let me ask you a few personal questions about you, and I'll kind of go through these quickly before we uh, finish up the, the interview. Uh, what's, a, what's a favorite movie of Sarissa's? What do you I haven't seen it in years, but Three Men and a Baby has always oh, yeah. been one of my favorites. Movie. All right. What about a favorite song? Oh, gosh. I knew you were going to ask that, too, and I don't know. What, I don't know if it's... What particular music do you enjoy the most? Country. Country music. Okay. Mm-hmm. A favorite artist in the My, country? I have a fa- I think I have a favorite song. It's not oh, okay. country and it's not a country artist. <laughs> okay. But Ironic from Alanis Morissette has always been oh, one yeah. of my favorite songs. Yeah. That's an interesting song. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What about a favorite meal? If you could oh, sit gosh. down and eat a meal and no, you don't have to worry about the calories. You don't have to worry about the anything. You could just eat this. What would you enjoy? It would either be nachos or sushi. Okay. <laughs> totally different, but one of those and for sure. And if you sure. could find a restaurant that offers both, that would even be that better, That would be right? perfect. Right. If you could uh, sit down with anyone, past or present, and have a meal with them and pick their brain and just talk to them and share notes. They don't even have to be a person alive today. It could be a person who's passed away in history. But you could just sit down with them and get to know them. Who, who would you pick and why? That's a hard one. I hate these kind of questions because I, I just don't know. Um, this might seem kind of random, but there is background to this. Okay. I studied it for a while, but I think I would really like to sit down with Jane Goodall. Okay, and why? I'm fascinated by her research. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually was a primatology major for a while. Okay. And so I'm just fascinated with what she learned and how she connected it to people. Yeah. That's just That whole thing is very fascinating to me. Right. If you were not a social worker, not in the counseling profession, and you could do another profession, what would it be? I loved working in student affairs with college students. Okay. Why is that? I love that. I think the same reason I like counseling, they're 18 to 22. They're in that transitional stage. Um, What I did in particular was a lot of um, activities and still mental health, but you know, I led alternative spring breaks. So we were volunteering. I've led orientations, just a lot of, so if you had a job at a college and, Mm -hmm. and directed the student affairs, you'd love that. Yes. Very interesting. Yes. All right. One more question. Uh, describe to me, uh, and for our audience, your perfect day off. Gosh. What do you love to do when you're just, when there's nothing else to do and you, you could create your day off. What would it be? I would get to drink my coffee slowly while it's still hot and maybe <laughs> Which sounds journal. like it must be rare. To do yes, that. very okay. rare. <laughs> okay. Maybe go to a coffee shop even. Yeah. I used to love to do that and just read or write, walk a beach with loud waves. I love mm. loud waves. Okay. Um, just really relaxing and by, my, by myself, right. totally by myself. Right. Or I don't mind being in a crowded place as long as I'm by myself. Right. Like a busy coffee shop would be perfect. Great. Well, thank you, Sarissa, for this time. This has been really enjoyable, and I have a lot of other questions I can continue on, so maybe we'll do it another time and get into some other areas. What What's the best way for people to contact you? If they would like to know a little bit more about you or follow you or you know, maybe they have a question or there could be even someone listening go, wow, I, I, I live in this area and I need to get my child in possibly or even myself and just sit down with Sarissa and talk. What's, what's a great way for them to contact you? I can be contacted at, at Pride in North Carolina. I do have a personal website as well, right. uh, rewritten.com. Okay. And that has information to get a hold of me. Great. 
All right, we'll put that in the notes too for people as they uh, check it out. Well, Sarissa, thank you again uh, for being with us. It's a real honor. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Imperfect Leader Podcast. And before we go, let me encourage you to please share this on social media. We want your family and friends to know more about the podcast and learn along with us. If you haven't already done so, please give us a rating and leave a comment on whatever platform you're listening to. It is the best gift you can give us. And remember, nothing succeeds like imperfection.